Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Guys, I am very excited. I have officially launched a survey, which is the first part in my long dissertation research process. This survey is measuring uh, a range of possible experiences that people could have in Christian church or Christian group settings. Anybody who has ever been a Christian or been involved in one of those churches or groups can answer it. It should take 10 to 15 minutes. It would help me marvelously if you guys would take this survey and please share it with any family and friends that are or have ever been Christian who might be willing to take it. The only thing is you have to be an adult. So don't share it with teenagers or kids. And the link to that is at the very top of the show notes, even before the description of this episode, because that's how important it is to me that I get people to sign up for this thing. Uh, The bigger sample the better and more robust the findings will be. I can't say much about it yet, but I'll rest assured I'll be talking about it plenty once I get that sweet, sweet data. So again, thank you. Link is at the top of the show notes for that survey. And now to today's episode. This was a very fun conversation to have. Lucy and Jordan were an absolute blast to talk to. This really is part of uh, that series, if you want to call it that, of So You Want a Bible Podcast. 
which started with Jared Bias from the Bible for Normal People a couple months back. Um, but the the title of that is just too long to explain uh, what they're up to, so that's why I didn't call it that this week. But basically, yeah, I don't I don't think there's much I need to say to intro here. I think that they explain what they're doing. I'll just say it was a great conversation, and I'm really excited for you guys to hear this. I've been waiting for this one to come out for a few months now. Okay, we'll just dive in. Lucy and Jordan, thank you guys so much for joining me today. You are the co-hosts of Two Feminists Annotate dot dot dot, started out as the Bible. Your current season is the Beatified, in other words, saints. But there is such a nice big backlog of Annotate the Bible episodes that you cleared the threshold for being included in this little So You Want a Bible podcast miniseries. Anyway, thank you guys for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Happy to be Thanks here. for having us. Now, you are Anglican slash Episcopal. That is why you're interested in, for instance, the saints, which would normally people might think of as a Catholic thing, but actually in the other sort of high church traditions, you do find that stuff. Maybe just say a little bit about if people are like surprised, like, oh, I want to listen to a Bible show, but why are they talking about saints? Like, can you motivate that a little bit? Sure. I mean, when we started the Bible podcast, our goal was really to highlight some of the forgotten characters of the Bible, some of the women who have really cool stories, but whose stories are not taught in Sunday school. And unless you are like a Bible power reader, you probably have never heard of the daughters of Zelophehad or Huldah and some of these other amazing characters yeah. in the scriptures. And so when we finished the Bible or when we sensed the end when you, when of we the- finished up annotating the Bible. When we kind of got, <laughs> we finished that project. <laughs> yeah, we were just having so much fun podcasting together. We decided to try and highlight some of the forgotten women of Christian history post Bible. And so in our tradition, we would call them saints. We would have particular days when we commemorate them. But even if you're not from a tradition that honors saints or keeps the calendar in that particular way, it's still cool to learn about these women of Christian history who did cool stuff that maybe we don't talk about as much as we talk about, say, Martin Luther. Yeah, the 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 excavation sort of technique is the same. Uh, lesser known Bible characters, and then unless you are, you know, quite observant, Catholic, Episcopal, Anglican, Orthodox, also pretty pretty less pretty understudied and underappreciated female saints. Exactly. Very cool. Yeah, I think one of the pieces that's been surprising to us as we have gone into the beatified moving from the Bible, the the Bible was really straightforward. We knew exactly kind of what the next episode was going to be. We went through fairly linearly, I would say. We we moved stuff around a little bit, but and people appreciated that. But with the Beatified, I have been surprised at the emails that we've received from people who don't come from a tradition that recognizes saints or talks a lot about saints, but have gotten a lot from, you know, hearing stories that have been forgotten about marginalization or um, a particularly traumatic event for a saint that has really resonated with them. And so that's been helpful, too. I, I, I've been surprised at the way it's impacted people from traditions that don't typically dig into that sort of thing. Yeah, that is very cool. So we're going to move a little 
quicker here than I tend to move just because we have a shorter timeline here. Can you guys each tell me briefly what the Bible was to you growing up? Yeah, um, absolutely. So I am kind of what they call a cradle Episcopalian, which I know we use in all sorts of traditions, but just always grew up in that church. And typically, and I don't want to speak out of turn, but typically in the Episcopal tradition, we're not always great, especially with our youth at digging in to kind of the richness of the biblical text as we could be. Episcopals um, I, are not known for their sword drills right, as exactly. we were uh, growing up evangelical. Yeah. Except but when yeah, I and Lucy are their youth ministers. Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But And so for me, kind of the interesting positive that came out of that, though, is I was really almost kind of this might not be the right word, but lackadaisical in the way that I approach like my biblical knowledge. Like I had this idea of what I imagined the church to be. And um, the Bible was woven through that. But if there was something in the Bible that I didn't agree with, as I was reading through as like a 12 year old, it wasn't a huge red flag for me because that just wasn't a big part of our tradition. And then as I got older and got more involved in, you know, I grew up in Texas. So evangelical circles and things like that, I realized for my peers, it was really alarming when parts of the Bible did didn't match up with kind of the morality that they thought they should be following. And so as I got older, and especially as I went into teaching, that was where I really felt a need to dig a little deeper and take a really serious look at how we could talk about the Bible in a way that that um, wasn't uncomfortable for people to question um, and how I could do that with kind of academic support as well, instead of just saying like, I don't know, it's whatever, it's no big deal, because that is not a helpful answer for people that are really struggling with biblical passages. Indeed. And if it was a good answer, this podcast would not exist. Would not. <laughs> so, uh, the market, the market niche has been created by people giving such bad answers. Well, Lucy thinks you actually answered my two questions in a row, which is what was it and and sort of how did you come to, as an adult, realize it was something you cared about more? Jordan, can we get sort of the same answer from you? You are now an Anglican priest, which means you went to seminary. I'm wondering where that change happened. Did it happen during, before seminary? And how did you start uh, as a kid? Yeah, so... My background is a little different than Lucy's. I grew up United Methodist, also in Texas. Similarly, I wouldn't say that we did sword drills, but at the same time, the Bible was very important. And reading the Bible and knowing the stories of the Bible, even if we didn't know the address, even if we didn't have like memory verses, knowing the stories of the Bible was something that was incredibly important for me and my childhood. And in university, in, in college, as I was kind of struggling to figure out where my place was in the Christian church, I was sojourning among non-denominational evangelicals for a little while before realizing that was really a bad fit. It is but, Texas after all. Uh, totally. You can't throw a rock without hitting one. Right? I mean, this was in like 2003. So height of like George W. Bush, compassionate conservatism kind of mm -hmm. time. And that was a very interesting time to be a Methodist, which George W. Bush is, or at least Laura Bush is, um, and an interesting time to be amongst the non-denominational evangelicals. But uh, studied abroad, joined the Church of England while I was in England, um, returned and was part of the Episcopal Church, received into the Episcopal Church uh, my senior year of college. And we 
sort of uniquely, I guess, did take it seriously. With that group, I did a Bible in 90 days study, and we read the whole thing cover to cover. Wow. And that was a really meaningful time for me to really take the Bible seriously. I was witnessing the same things that Lucy was, and it became clear to me that it wasn't an adequate answer to just say, well, the Bible says, let the women be silent in churches, but we ordain women, but not explain why. Right. How did there's we a, come to understand this scripture differently? Yeah, there's How an obvious we, disconnect there, right? You have to... Exactly. You kind of got to explain that. How'd you travel that distance, right? Exactly. And because the mainline Protestants, both Methodists and Episcopalians, were not doing a good job of explaining it... We were open to being hit by charges that we just didn't care about the Bible and that we weren't taking it seriously. And that was not a project that I felt at all. So then when I went to seminary, it became incredibly important for me to encounter the Bible, yes, with these academic tools, but also as a person of faith. And to figure out what does it mean to me and how can I read this in a way that's faithful, that doesn't take it literally, but that is faithful to its purpose, I guess. Because one of the things I love about the Anglican tradition, and just for your listeners who may be confused about the whole Episcopal Anglican thing. Please, yeah. So the Anglican communion is a worldwide communion of folks whose religious tradition started out of the Church of England in the Reformation. Right. So that the king could get divorced. So This is what we were told (laughs) in evangelical high school. (laughs) But okay, but let's, okay, that's going to be completely set aside. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. But so there's two countries in the world that had somewhat more of a dramatic break from England. So they decided to stop calling their Anglicanism Anglicanism because that's too Anglo and too much like England. So that's the Scottish Episcopal Church and the Episcopal Church that's in the United States of America. Of course, because these are the two countries who (laughs) most wanted to define themselves as not British. (laughs) Think of Braveheart, think of the Revolutionary War. There's your answer. Okay, so... They call it Episcopal. Everywhere else, it's Anglican. Canadian okay. Anglicans, Australian Anglicans, right. South African Anglicans. So in the States, what I tend to find is that churches that call themselves Episcopal are the liberal ones, for lack of a better term. These are the Gene Robinson, first gay priest or gay bishop churches. And then Anglican churches in the States are often a bit more conservative we might call them like center right. They're kind of like uh, they're the theological version of the Never Trumpers, right? They're like the, <laughs> the David French and David Brooks of the Christian world. But that's not the case necessarily in Canada where you are. That's absolutely true. So the Anglican Church in the United States arose out of those disputes. It was a mission from other parts of the Anglican Communion to the United States to sort of speak against the ordination of openly LGBT folks, to speak against, uh, in many cases, the ordination of women. And so they are not part of the Anglican Communion, actually. They are a separate group. They still come from that same historic tradition. 
but they are not affiliated with the Anglican Communion in the way Whoa. that Pulling the... that official affiliation card. Uh, a little bit. Love little that, bit. Jordan. Okay. Um, so but Canadian Anglicans helpful. are all over the map. You have very conservative Canadian Anglicans. You have okay. extremely progressive Canadian Anglicans. It does not signify that same distinction that you're making in the United States. Good. Okay. So that's helpful. Now, here's a question that we can brush past as quickly as you'd like, but it is the kind of thing that maybe unfortunately colors all conversation about Bible Bible talk in North America these days. And that is when people ask about inerrancy, infallibility, inspiration, pick your I word, what is your guys' standard answer? You want so, me to take yeah, it, Lucy, or I, are you going? This is a really good question. Jordan, you want me to go first, and then you can clean it up, essentially. I mean, we, we typically say <laughs> that, that is what I do. the Bible is divinely inspired. And just like Jordan talked about earlier, you know, we believe the Bible's incredibly important and serious study of that revelation requires discussion, questions, thoughtfulness, and the approach. But as far as inerrant, that is not where we land. Divinely yeah. inspired, I think, is typically the standard line. Would you agree, Jordan? Yeah, I would agree. You know, I think where I was trying to go before I went off on a history of Anglicanism tangent before is that in the Anglican tradition, we believe in scripture, tradition and reason. And so it's important for us to remember that scripture is a lens that allows us to see God. And it's a lens that's very close to God because it was given to us as a gift by God. And so it's important and it's holy, but it's not the end itself. The end is to see God. And the Bible's only use is as a tool that assists us in seeing God. And so if it is blocking that for whatever reason, then we're using it wrongly. And we are making the Bible honestly into kind of an idol where it's more important than God is and the people that God created and the world that God created. And so I also don't think it's possible to take the Bible literally, especially if you're reading it in English. But even if you're reading it in the original languages, our context and the way that we interpret words is so different than how the original readers would have interpreted those words that it doesn't even make any actual sense. Like, the, so when people say, oh, well, I read the Bible literally. I'm like, you can't. Mm -hmm. In 2020, with the intervening 2,000 years of Christianity, years of Jewish tradition before that, you cannot read it without having those cultural echoes ringing in your ears. It's not possible. So you don't come to it as a blank slate. You're reading it in the context of the culture you live in. And so... Yes, it is divinely inspired. Yes, it's an incredibly important tool. We take it very seriously, and it's important to read it faithfully and not dismiss it as irrelevant or outdated. And it's important to acknowledge your action as a reader and the lenses and the context that you bring to it and not deify or idolize those lenses. 
is what yeah, I Yeah, I think when you talk about the Bible getting in the way of seeing God, I think even to kind of build on that, it is the interpretation of the Bible sometimes that gets in the way, right? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like literary theory. There is the text and there's the reader, and then there is the meaning that's made new, wholly new each time when the reader and the text encounter each other. And I think that's divine too, you know, and so... We take it extremely seriously. Sometimes that's the critique that frustrates me when people get into this debate about how you should read the Bible is I don't know how you could take it seriously and not want to kind of wrestle with the meaning of the text and the implications on the way that you practice Christianity. What's more serious than that, you know? Yeah, I want to take a little stab at that briefly. I think that there are at least two ways that people could be on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. One is, let's just call it people with a lower amount of either aptitude or interest in the background and and the close reading and all of that, but who have a high degree of devotion. And so given what they've been taught, those two things combine and they just go, well, I love God and I want to be obedient to God. And so this is how I have to do it, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes those people don't have the cognitive ability or training or just interest, frankly, in sort of like getting past that primitive is the wrong word. Naive is maybe a better word approach. Those people I'm not frustrated with at all. Mm -hmm. Those people are just, you know, they're in their circumstances and their circumstances are what they are. And I'm positive that God sees their heart there and is like, loves it, Mm -hmm. loves their willingness to obey. The other category, and I'm sure there are more, but the second category that comes to mind is the person for whom they are managing their own internal anxiety by finding a source of certainty that they can then use to clobber anyone else as well as clobber themselves and their own anxiety into calming themselves down so that they can get through the day. And when those people try and speak as if the Bible is clear and monolithic and homogeneous and fill it in, whatever words you want to use, now we're actually distorting the Bible for our own ends, which I could have compassion on the person for experiencing that anxiety, but I can't fail to speak out against the shitty argument and the, and the amount of anxiety and other sorts of negative things that will produce in all the people that they are influencing, you know, that don't necessarily have, you know, that have whatever, various other issues of their own. Yeah. yeah. And I would call out my fellow clergy on that, that it's our responsibility to respond compassionately to that anxiety and to teach in such a way that doesn't produce anxiety for people so that they're able to move past that place that you're talking about. And so it's on pastors, it's on teachers to non-anxiously encounter the Bible in a way that people feel safe to do so and doesn't allow them to hurt other people. I mean, I always go back to the quote from St. Augustine, he who has read the scriptures in such a way as does not build up the greater love of God and the greater love of neighbor has not yet understood them as he ought. And I mean, St. Augustine is not a 20th century guy. He's not a liberal progressive guy. 
He, <laughs> you know, St. Augustine is fourth century pillar doctor of the church. And he's talking about reading the scriptures through the lens of the great commandment. And that's the same thing that presiding Bishop Michael Curry is teaching in the Episcopal church. And so when people are like, oh, well, that's just you're you've become captive to culture or you're moving with the times. I'm like, no, we were teaching this in the fourth century, guys. Well, and I would argue that it's not, it's totally countercultural, that ra- that idea of radical love. You know, wouldn't it be great if we could recenter or if we could kind of assuage that anxiety with instead of certainty about the literalness of, of scriptural passages, right? The certainty of the grace component, right? God is big enough for us to wrestle with, you know, hard things. And that piece, right, is certain. Because it's disheartening, I think, for us both growing up in kind of some of those, not directly, indirectly, right, evangelical circles. It's disheartening, especially to see, you know, we've done a lot of work with youth, right? And it's really disheartening to see firsthand the way that somebody's spiritual growth is stymied because they are not able to ever get past the fact that, you know, the Bible is telling me, right, or someone talking about the Bible is telling me that my gay best friend is going to hell, and I can't reconcile that with my own spiritual morality, therefore I must leave the church, or this isn't it for me. So that makes it even more important for us. So I want to pick up on that certainty bit there, Lucy. From where I'm coming from, this is more speaking personally, I would not use the word certainty when I'm talking about God's love, certainly not the resurrection of Jesus, even though I affirm it in faith. I would say that my experience of God's love directly have been the best experiences of my life, and they have been the best kind of anchor, such that when I read or hear people talk about their religious experience— and how formative and joy-bringing and peace-giving they are, I go, "Ah, I recognize that. That's the experience that I've had. But it's precisely not certain, right? It's like it's embodied. It's biological. It is in some sense contingent on the brain I happen to inherit. Whereas I think that what the temptation is with the text is that it appears to be completely unchanging, completely concrete, rock-solid bedrock. And Jordan was, of course, problematizing that earlier in terms of translation and idioms and, you know, ways of speaking and cultural baggage. So it's not actually that. But that's what it appears to be. And so that is, in one sense, psychologically why it's so powerful to, let's do bibliolatry, let's make the text the idol, because at least it is so certain And it's a fundamental fact of human experience that we have uncertainty, anxiety. We know we're going to die. We see chaos around us. Things don't seem to go the way we, you know, oh, finally a port in the storm, right? So maybe I'm sort of bastardizing the way you used certainty there, but that's what came up for me. Yeah, maybe. And that's, I think, a fair critique. And maybe it would make more sense to then replace certainty with hopefulness or or something along those lines, right? But I I do think that we, to go back to using the word certainty, can do a better job of fostering, you know, hopefulness, certainty, something along those lines, that sense of a safety net with especially young people growing up in the church. Because, you know, kind of anecdotally, so, so I've taught 
I work in Episcopal schools, and so I've taught religion in Episcopal schools, um, but Episcopal schools in very non-denominational evangelical areas, right? And so we don't have a ton of Episcopalian kids at our Episcopal schools. And when we start talking about evolution and things like that, I have had students sit in the classroom and say, I can't participate in this because it pulls my salvation into question. And so I think we can do a better job fostering that hopefulness, maybe, so that at some point they might be more comfortable using the word certainty at some point. I would love for our kids to get there. And what I would say is that in in the Anglican tradition, that safety net that you're talking about isn't the words of the text. It's the Christian community. I remember learning in seminary that when we, so we have this book called the Book of Common Prayer, and that is the liturgical aid that is kind of the text. The joke is that Episcopalians take the Book of Common Prayer much more seriously than the Bible, right? Um, or I love the Bible because it quotes the Book of Common Prayer so often. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But when it's common prayer, the idea is that it's held in common. And my seminary dean, when I was studying there, said that sometimes when you're praying, you may not believe all of the words. You may not have that hopefulness within yourself. You may have the anxiety. You may have the uncertainty. You may be wrestling with something really challenging. And what you do in those moments is you let everyone else who's praying those words hold you up. And that's your safety net. And so he would talk particularly about the creed, right? The creed is like this statement of faith. We believe. And sometimes people are like, oh, well, what if I don't believe in the resurrection of the dead? What if I don't believe in this? And it's like, well, the church believes that for you. And you wrestle with it and you work it out. And in that meantime, we'll believe it on your behalf. And that will carry you. And so I think I would say the same thing when it comes to a hopefulness and a trust in God's faithfulness, even when we are not faithful. And that story is throughout the scriptures to trust that Jesus has got it and Jesus has got us. And even if we're interpreting the scriptures wrong, even if we come up against something that we feel we can't participate in or we're struggling with, we don't have to write the whole thing off because Our faith is not in these words that can be proved or disproved. I'm thinking about like all of the factual stuff or the science stuff that uh, was a big thing with new atheism a while back um, or some of the moral conflicts that Lucy's talking about with um, understanding evolution or support and affirmation for the LGBT community. When you come up against those conflicts, you don't have to just throw the whole thing away. Instead, there's this safety net of other people around you holding you up and praying the things that you're struggling with and believing the things that you're struggling with. And they're carrying you as you go forward. And so it's not all on you and your intellectual ascent to these words in front of you. Yeah. And the only thing I would add to that, and I know this, we're kind of tangentially moving away from biblical interpretation, but, and it's that, that connection that I feel like the more that we reinforce it, that is the piece that then empowers people to really live into that beloved community, that, 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 that idea of kind of, you know, the bigger body of saints or the, the Christian church, and then show that grace to other people and care for other people as opposed to trying to create division or understand the church through who's in and who's out. 100%. 
And where I'd like to go is you guys with your show, you use what is called the feminist hermeneutic. This is a, a way of approaching the text through feminist theology. But in our little emails before we got down to it today, you mentioned how this is often thought of as like a specialty tool. So you might have your hammer and your drill and every once in a while you got to go get those, you know, the, the Allen wrenches, but you don't use them that often. You know, maybe when you have an Ikea furniture piece or something, you get the Allen wrenches out. But you guys are like, no, like the, the feminist hermeneutic is like a lot more like a drill or a hammer. Uh, it's not just this thing on the side. It, it really should be something we use quite regularly. And I'd love to hear you motivate that a bit. Yeah, I think, you know, the reason and we talked a little bit kind of about that. That was the reason that we, you know, originally started the podcast, right, is because we have and I know you've talked about this on your show before. We've got a long tradition of perspectives on the church and the Bible and theology that are often, you know, kind of considered the norm or come from a more normative place, whether we're talking about race, whether we're talking about ability, whether we're talking about, you know, sexuality, we have the norm or what we think of as the norm. We could even kind of push back on that terminology, well represented, right? We encounter it all the time. But what we know is that the norm is not necessarily the population of our church, right? It never has been. And we have been missing over and over again the voices and the experiences of people that might be outside, considered outside of that norm in the text all the time. And so then we just slowly kind of edge those people out of the church and out of the conversation. And because of that, right, that is why I think, you know, Jordan, feel free to jump in. It's so essential to go back and say, I'm committed to looking for the voices that have been erased, not just sometimes, but all the times, because the the other voices are there. You know, they continue to be there. They're not going anywhere. They're well cemented in our traditions. As you talk about that, you're making me realize that I, I should have asked a question before, which is, could you give us a description of the feminist hermeneutic. And now you're reminding me that part of that is looking for the voices that are coming out of the text that are non-dominant, but that like remain in there, like sort of as a testimony to their power. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to answer that because you guys will give a much better answer. I couldn't give as good of an answer on what a feminist hermeneutic is anyway. But And then uh, we can also talk with Jordan about making that more essential. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that there's many definitions of a feminist hermeneutic and uh, a whole lot of academic theory and background that we could go into. But for me, a feminist hermeneutic is one that assumes that women's voices within the texts and women's perspectives upon the text are just as valid and as essential to the conversation as men's. I love that. Super succinct. One way that I've thought about it, and you can tell me if I'm right or not, is that you're sort of controlling for sexism and patriarchy at every stage of the creation, transmission, the oral history, the canonization process. If you just go, look, for most of human history, we were patriarchal through and through. And by the grace of God, we are becoming less so now. How would we control for that? When we're looking at something like the foundational text of our religious tradition, am I onto something there? I would say so, absolutely. That we recognize that 
even though the text has been divinely inspired and the Holy Spirit has contributed at every stage, like you're describing at the oral tradition that founded these texts, the writing down of them, the canonization, and then church tradition of interpretation over the last 2,000 right. years, the Holy Spirit was involved with that, but also human sin, and I would argue that patriarchy is a sin, has been involved in that too. And so there's that balance. And so it's looking for the work of the Spirit. I often talk about on the podcast, particularly when we're in some of the New Testament passages, I talk about what goes against the culture, what goes against the grain. So in 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul says, wives submit to your husbands, husbands submit to your wives, that goes against the culture. That that speaks against what they were used to. Whereas when you look at the household codes in Ephesians and in Colossians, it's just one way. It's much more what you would expect from the culture. Wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives possibly was a little move in that direction, but not as radical as 1 Corinthians 7. So when I'm trying to read for what the Holy Spirit is doing and is challenging in the culture around, I'm looking for what would have been really shocking and surprising and different, what would have uh, worked against the norms and mores of the culture around them. And so that to me is evidence that the Holy Spirit is sneaking in. Whereas if it just matches what was exactly the culture, I'm like, well, what is this really what God is saying to the church? Or is this human sin sneaking in, in that situation? And so that's a part of my lens is trying to look, how is this different? How is God speaking against what human culture is doing? A non-feminist example of that would be like Jesus telling the Good Samaritan parable to the answer of who is my neighbor. Mm -hmm. Who is my neighbor? Uh, This racial outgroup member shows us who his neighbor is. And there are, of course, gendered ones like that as well. The woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery. But just to say like it's not only the feminist angle that gets at the – like that's not the only thing in the Bible where something's poking through – you know, that's countercultural. Jesus did it all the time. Jesus did it all the time and with so many different categories of people and not even just Jesus. We see this in the rest of the stories as well. You know, I think about the daughters of Zelophehad, who, so Moses I mean, who doesn't, just, right? <laughs> who doesn't just wake up thinking about those daughters? <laughs> I love the daughters of Zelophehad. Lucy laughs at me a lot because I use every excuse to bring them into every conversation. I, hey, I love it. I'm here for it. I just how many how many daughters did Zelophehad have? Five. So I'm just thinking about a kid's song like, <laughs> you know, Zelophehad had, had five daughters. daughters. <laughs> yeah, had many daughters. You know, there's, there's some Zilofahad. pun in there. Yeah, I'm not sure how to do it. I'm, anyway, I'm you think about, thinking about them, that Father Abraham song where it's like Father right. Abraham had many sons. Yeah. Zalofa had had five daughters. <laughs> yeah, that's good. We're on. Well, there's something there. We'll we'll follow it up. Later. Album out anyway. <laughs> exactly. But so the Israelites have just are are fixing to arrive in the promised land. You know, Moses is looking out over the promised land, and they're about to divide up the land. And this man named Zalofa had has died, and he had no sons. And so his family, his descendants are fixing to get excluded from the distribution of the land. 
according to the way that it was set out, because it was all heads of families, all patriarchal men as heads of household, right? And wives, like, give it up and they move into their husband's land whenever they get married. And so these five women, they go to Moses and they say, Moses, you are wrong. This law that you are giving to distribute the land is incorrect. And our father deserves to have his name preserved through us. And they are not like asking nicely. If you read Dr. Will Gaffney's book, Womanist Midrash, she translates the Hebrew as very imperative mode. This is a demand. Give us the land. And Moses is like, "Mm, I don't know about that. Let me go talk to God. And he goes to talk to God and God says, oh, yeah, they're right. You should give them the land. And so the law is rewritten in this story because these women stood up and demanded that the law get rewritten. And God sided with them rather than with Moses in that story. And so we have it preserved. It's told in numbers. It's told again in Joshua. So Hmm. we have it throughout the Old Testament, this this story of the law itself being changed in response to women standing up and demanding that. And so if we look at that story, we can see all the way from the beginning. I mean, they're not even in the promised land yet. They're still wandering in the wilderness. Right. And God is valuing and honoring women's voices in a way that would have been totally opposite to what the culture was talking about. It is a miracle that this story was told and retained in this scripture for thousands of years that nobody ever said, oh, that doesn't sound like God. I'm going to write that out. (laughs) Yeah. It's amazing to me. That's the divine inspiration right there. And and, uh, protection or the the continuation of keeping that in it through – the spirit. Am I going too far if I add another layer to that story and say because of the background of the golden calf and just how shitty things are going <laughs> for the Israelites in the wilderness, they get the manna and then after a little while they're like, man, this manna is boring. Can we, you know, so the the background is like not exactly of a faithful, vibrant Yahweh loving people. So you have this kind of really struggling sort of religious ethnic group. Mm-hmm. And then you have this story of these women coming through and, and being such leaders that they get God's attention mm-hmm. through Moses in a particularly strong way. And I can't help but apply that to, for instance, American Christianity in 2020. And if uh, we might be in a similar situation where, you know, God's given us the manna and we're like, ah, kind of sick of this manna. I'd really love some political power instead. <laughs> uh, and shows like yours and, and people like the, the family members of the black Christians killed in Charleston and elsewhere, you know, coming up and like presenting this sort of like thing that gets God's attention and gets some of our attention as well. I don't know. Maybe I'm being a little loosey-goosey. Yeah, I don't think that's taking it too far at all. And I think that's an important, you know, when we're talking about the need 
right? The absolute need for that feminist hermeneutic, you know, th- that is that is a piece of it. You know, you said earlier talking about the story of the Good Samaritan, like kind of a non-feminist example. And I would argue that absolutely is a feminist example, because the the idea there is not just to pull power away from men to give to women, right? The idea, and this is, of course, what people fundamentally, you know, misunderstand about feminism all the time, right? The idea is simply to understand the ways that patriarchal structures hurt us all, right? Right. That they are death dealing to every single one of us. And so it is about not taking power away from one group so that they have none. It is simply saying, let's all have a seat at the table together. Let's all work for this together, you know? And so, yeah, I think absolutely that is relevant today as well. We see certainly, as people have argued and gone back and forth about the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Um, this, This idea that somehow recognizing the significance of the lives of our Black siblings somehow diminishes the lives of anyone else is just bananas, right? We understand the fallacy there. And so I don't think that takes it too far at all. Let's take a little break, and when we come back, we are going to talk about clobber passages and the LGBTQ community and Paul and gender. I send out lists of possible biblical topics for these episodes, and those are the two you guys chose, and I'm I'm excited to get into that with you. Excellent. We are too. As most of you know, there is a Patreon campaign into which uh, you can put some money. (laughs) That's a funny way of saying it. Uh, To support the show, it's five bucks a month. There is a sliding scale. If you can't afford that, you can email me at youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. But patrons get access to the patron-only Facebook group, as well as at least two exclusive episodes per month. And the most recent one was a very fun conversation with movie critic for Vox Media, Alyssa Wilkinson. We talk about Terrence Malick and Martin Scorsese, as well as the Christian film industry. That's patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. Back to the show. So at the risk of uh, being uh, sexist myself, I I thought it might be fun to kind of get back in here on something that people can't see, but I'm really enjoying being able to see the both of you. Jordan, you have mentioned Dungeons and Dragons before we started. It's also on your bio on your guys' website. You have long, straight, dark hair, a black t-shirt, and Lucy, you are wearing, uh, you have pink headphones. Uh Uh-huh. A floral print <laughs> appears to be a shirt and like a white North Face fleece. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm just like, man, we're really getting a the, nice spread of yeah. female culture here on the Two Feminists Annotate podcast. For sure. There are some cultural signifiers there, for sure. 100%. We joke about it. Often I'm coming home from school where I have, you know, like done done my hair um and bit like i'm very quaffed and jordan we joke about um tahani from the good place like my hair's barely even cascading like that yeah, yeah. that sort of thing and uh yeah we we enjoy that dichotomy between the two of us would you say jordan yes absolutely <laughs> i chose to wear my ben wildflower magnificat t-shirt Listeners to our show will be very familiar with Mary raising her fist in solidarity while uh, saying, cast down the mighty from their thrones. And Lucy sent this to me, gosh, probably two years ago. She sent Mm -hmm. me a care package that was mostly Ben Wildflower 
art, which is particularly hilarious to me because when we started the Bible podcast, we started in the summer of 2016, July 2016. And Lucy was very anxious that we not be too radical when we first (laughs) got started. And Mm -hmm. she really, and you know, it was funny. You would think that would be me because I'm the one looking for clergy jobs at various points in my career. But it was totally her really like, hey, I don't want to be stereotyped or or miscast as like the angry radical feminist, right? And then by the time she sent me the care package, including this shirt, she also sent me a Ben Wildflower print that says, eat the rich on it. So (laughs) she has made a journey in the last four years, y'all. It's been a big journey. Yeah, it's been important for us, too. I think, uh, you know, and certainly like social and geographical location plays into that some. But I'm also a big believer, and we joke about this, too, whether or not you can... You know, hearkening back to Audre Lorde, can the, can the master's tools dismantle the master's house, that sort of thing. But I, I do think that there is some – sometimes it is helpful to be able to speak truth to power from within the circles, within those circles, if that makes sense. Um, and you so, are so, speaking my language. Yeah. You don't know me well <laughs> enough to know, but listeners know how – great I feel about this turn in the conversation. <laughs> I get shit for not being radical enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I am like a convinced centrist, not yeah. in the sense of just finding the middle and not ruffling feathers, but in the sense of like Jonathan Haidt and other social psychologists of mm-hmm. like, how do you actually change people's minds? Mm-hmm. You have to give them something they can look up to that they already feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then you tweak it 10% and mm-hmm. then they'll go 10%. Mm-hmm. So I, and also like, I mean, I, Lucy, I'm looking at your photo on your guys' website, and it is – I know you are a high school teacher. It is very clearly a school photo. It is very clearly a school photo. Uh, you got the, like, kind of gray background. You've got – your hair is like – I don't know if that's called a blowout or what it is. It is but a like, blowout. Okay, you've got a blowout. So I'm just saying, listeners, you get the gamut here with these ladies – and you're, they're both perfectly viable paths to feminism or expressions, <laughs> rather, of feminism. And I love it. I'm so in. Uh, Jordan, your photo on the website is you with these badass Joe Biden aviators. <laughs> just just like totally cold mug, like not smiling. You could imagine it going further, like you're wearing like a cannibal corpse T-shirt or something like that. But I'll take it. It's I'll take it. That's on my way. 100% how I would describe Jordan. So that's that's appropriate. Hell yeah. That was on my way into an Easter vigil service. And so I shared that on my socials with let's go get Jesus raised, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's get into uh, one of these two issues and you guys can choose which one we do first. We're, we're not going to have like a ton of time. We're, obviously, we're not going to get. We're going to be exhaustive here. I, I like that we spent more time on kind of your story and the feminist hermeneutic because we haven't – I haven't actually gone into depth on that. I have talked about these issues in quite a bit of depth, but I'm, I want listeners to get a sense of how you guys think about these because really the whole point of this episode is for people who want more Bible content and then I think actually the, the saints content as well to just start listening to you. So – Okay, you choose clobber passages or Paul and gender. Lucy, what do you think? You want to start with gender and then move to LGBT? That sounds awesome. Passages? Okay, that sounds awesome. Start us off. Yeah, I mean, I felt a call to ordination from being a teenager. 
I mentioned in my story before, right? I, I was exploring ordination in the Methodist tradition before I moved over to the Episcopal Church. And both of those denominations have ordained women for quite some time. And by the time I was a kid growing up in the 90s and becoming Episcopalian in the early 2000s, they weren't talking about why anymore. Maybe they had done a good job of talking about why in the 60s and 70s when they were first deciding to right. ordain women. But they weren't talking about it, at least in like regular church circles. In seminary, we talked about it. And I'm surrounded by all of these folks who have certainty about how they interpret the Bible. And it's very clear. Let women be silent in the churches. I do not permit a woman to teach men. And all of those passages are being thrown at me as I'm having very clear, I would say supernatural. This is a joke on our podcast. Lucy's a little bit more of a rationalist and I a little bit more lean into supernatural experiences of God. <laughs> Spooky. <laughs> it is Halloween as we record. Yeah. yeah, it is Halloween today. That's right. Yeah. Um, but I was having these very clear calls from God and I had grown up, I had seen women in my Methodist church from a very young age. And so I knew that it was something that was viable. And so as I began to explore it more, like I was talking about earlier, I looked to what were the stories that were going against the culture as opposed mm -hmm. to the stories that were going for the culture. And so stories like Mary of Bethany sitting at the feet of Jesus, stories like Mary Magdalene being the first in, in the Gospel of John, the only witness to the resurrection, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, being you know, in the Anglican tradition, thinking about her as the mother of priests or the first priest, because priests in the sacraments bring forth the body of Christ in the bread and the wine. And Mary brought forth Jesus from her body by giving birth to him. So in our tradition, we would call her the first priest. And in Roman Catholicism, that was actually something that was a really common view until women started taking that to uh, <laughs> say, well, wait, maybe women can be priests then. So it was a common yeah. devotional <laughs> thing. Just kidding. Stop so, yeah, that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait yeah. a minute. Cut that off. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you see, there's lots of traditional art depicting Mary wearing the robes and the garb oh, of like a priest. Mm -hmm. Wow. But yeah. so the devil's advocate here, and I'm, you could probably anticipate this, is mm -hmm. well, Jordan, those are some really beautiful stories, and they no doubt reflect something about what God wants for men and women and who knows why he wanted women to see the resurrection first. But Paul's clear. That's how that goes. So how do you respond to that common counter? I would say Jesus is God and Paul ain't, uh, is, <laughs> is kind of the easy answer there, you know, and, and yeah. it, it is true. I had a seminarian classmate who had grown up Pentecostal and was now pursuing ordination in the Episcopal church. And so he knew his Bible and he was a gay man and had had all of the stuff thrown at him. Uh, and he was like, look in the Episcopal church, if you look at our liturgy, we stand for the gospel and we sit when we read Paul. So we're expressing right. in our bodies where our priorities lie. And I talk about this every chance I get. I <laughs> love this about Episcopal Church. Oh, nice. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Might so, be uh, probably my favorite Episcopal distinctive. Oh, I guess it's in the Catholic Church, too. Mm -hmm. um, it's my favorite distinctive of the high church 
stuff is the standing for the gospel and sitting for the rest of the scripture. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I love that. And I particularly love if you have a gospel procession and you read the gospel in the midst of the people. Yep. You put it in the middle of the group. That, yes, love that so much. To me, it mirrors the incarnation, Jesus coming among the people. And then we all turn and we orient our bodies and the people who are standing in the front turn to face the gospel. Yep. And so we are literally – Just in case people don't know it, I, I don't – I can't remember when I've talked about this. It might have been on a patron-only episode. But in the Episcopal Church, you know, you, you, you're sitting for the Old Testament reading and the, and the epistles reading. But then when it comes time for the gospel, it is a different book. It's usually gold – gold leaf or gold plated. They hold it up above them. They walk into the center of the room, like in the middle of the pews, like the center pew. You announce it with a hymn. Say that again. You announce it with a hymn. There's a hymn that precedes Mm -hmm. it. And then everybody stands and they turn, you turn toward the middle of the room and they read the gospel there. And it's like you said, it is a bodily and spatial way of saying, we have a canon within the canon. It is the Gospels. It is Jesus. And I just love that because I think everybody has a canon within a canon. They just aren't honest about it. Mm -hmm. And so I think let's just be honest about it and put it in the middle of the room and put it like put gold around it. You know, whatever you got (laughs) to do. Precious gems on it. Yeah. Yes. Get some gems on there. Get the hymn going. Get the choir. You know, whatever you got to do. This is the center. So I love that. You're making me really sad for Corona Tide and missing in-person church right now. I know, honestly, I know. like that's that's hitting hard. Sorry, go Corona-tide? ahead. Corona Tide. Yeah, I Corona-tide. have not heard that. <laughs> that that's it. really funny. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Jordan. Well, and I'm in Canada, so my church is meeting in person, but we're not doing a gospel procession because yeah. that's standing too close to people. So right, right. Uh, yeah. re- reading up at the front so I can be distanced from everybody. But yeah. I think you you are you are singing my song. Everybody has a canon within the canon, and they're just not honest about it. And even the people who are taking those clear verses from Paul, they're not, for the most part, having women cover their heads, like it says in First Corinthians yes. fourteen. Right. And what are they going to do about the slaves obey your masters part of the household codes? Like, wh- what are you doing about that, guys? If Paul is clear. Yeah, and the fact that they're clear about everything, right? And And the fact that there are clearly moments during the story where women play a really important role in leadership, based on just the narrative that we see. And so, I think to some extent, it's also what are you deciding to wait? You know, we said everybody has a canon within a canon, and not everyone is totally open about it or maybe even aware of it. But but this also goes back to your own interpretation. Everybody is waiting some passages other than more than others, and not being totally honest about kind of. the agenda that might be behind that, right? And I will throw ourselves in there as well. I think that's why that hermeneutic of suspicion and always working to be self-aware is so essential. Yeah, I want to try and connect a couple of things here, and this may fail. But when we say everyone has a canon within a canon, they just aren't honest about it, that can sound like it is primarily a sort of a character jab. I want to be clear that I don't mean it that way. I actually think that a canon within a canon is made necessary by the nature of the text itself. So I'm going to pull from Christian Smith here in his book, Bible Made Impossible, which was one of the most helpful books I've read about thinking about how I see scripture. But he uses this image of a puzzle. And so he says, 
what most inerrantists believe about the Bible is that there is a puzzle that the text would make if we knew where all the pieces went. That like maybe, you you know, maybe we're not good at like we're flawed people. Uh, and so we're always kind of trying to get the puzzle together. And maybe that's a lifelong process. But there is a finished puzzle that you can put every biblical piece into and it does make a picture. And we're just uh, disagreeing about where the pieces go. And Smith says, no, the Bible is fundamentally multivocal. Yes. There is no single puzzle you can make from it. It, it resists being made into a puzzle. It won't go. The pieces won't fit. And so if that's true, we can actually give people some slack for not being able to get the puzzle together because they can't do it. So if the puzzle will never go together, then it is necessary to focus on one part over another part because they're they're just contradictory. You can't focus on both of them at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that that would be like the mechanism by which people end up having a canon within a canon. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I'm like, yeah, so let's make a Jesus. Yeah. What, what's the what's a better choice? Absolutely. I completely agree. And, you know, I, I will bolster your argument. My Hebrew Bible professor in seminary was Joel Baden, a Jewish man and Hebrew Bible scholar. And he would teach us that the Bible by itself teaches us how to interpret it. And he uses the example of the documentary hypothesis in the Torah. You're nodding, so I'm assuming you're familiar. Don't know if your listeners are familiar with the documentary hypothesis. Uh whether or not they are, the other, the the mo- more recent interview I did on a Bible podcast was with Jared Bias from okay. Bible for Normal People, and we talk about the documentary hypothesis, so we don't need to go into it here. But it's, yeah, it's that there are four or five traditions from which the Torah is comp- ultimately compiled. And so Dr. Baden talked about how for the compiler of the Torah, whoever that yeah. person was— The Bible itself claims for it to perhaps be Ezra, and Dr. Baden thinks there is some evidence for it to be Ezra. Um, Mm -hmm. So if we just call this compiler Ezra, it was more important to him to preserve these disparate traditions and disparate experiences of God and who God was. Say, for example, in the Noah story, when it talks about, do you bring seven pairs of the clean animals and two pairs of the unclean animals, or do you just bring two of every kind? It was more important to preserve that disagreement than to edit it into one coherent narrative, to smash it into that puzzle that you're talking about where there's one narrative. And so if, as you know, Dr. Bannon obviously has a different perspective being Jewish, but for Christians, if we believe that the Holy Spirit was at work in Ezra's compilation of the Torah, then what the Holy Spirit is telling us is that preserving that multivocality is more important than uniformity. And having those disparate perspectives on who God is and what God is calling us to do is more important. And so if we are interpreting the Bible the way the Bible interprets itself, of course we're going to have that multivocality. Of course we're going to have a canon within a canon. And just like you say, it ought to be Jesus. It ought to be the great commandment that Jesus gave us, like I was talking about earlier with St. Augustine. And so I, I look at these stories, and when I hear people talk about like biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, so often they use these instructive passages, whether that's the household codes, whether that's Proverbs, Proverbs 31 gets lifted up a whole lot. 
And they don't use the actual narratives of characters within the Bible and characters that God approves of, right? Like God approves of Deborah in the book of Judges. God approves of Yael. God approves of Huldah, who is the interpreter of the law for King Josiah when the Israelites have not been following the law for a very long time. And so if we're looking for, you know, you were kind of making a joke earlier about how Lucy and I are these different expressions of femininity. The Bible includes multiple ways for women to act biblically. And they're not all the Proverbs 31 women. They're not all submissive, obedient wives who are silent in churches. There are multiple ways to be a biblical woman. And like Lucy was saying, patriarchy traps us all. There's multiple ways to be a biblical man. Mm-hmm. You don't yeah. have to just, you know, follow whatever kind of toxic masculinity argument there is. And so if the Bible is preserving this multivocality and is teaching us to that, that's more important than that uniformity, then it's actually us being disobedient by trying to smush it into one coherent narrative. So I'm realizing that uh, we're not going to have time because of some scheduling stuff on my end to go into the clobber passages. So Lucy, I want to give you a chance to weigh in here on the Paul and gender discussion. Jordan has done a very stereotypically feminist thing and talked. <laughs> no, totally, totally kidding. Uh, has actually given us a quite robust framework here. And then we riffed a bit on the canon within a canon thing. Um, which I haven't heard from you much on this topic. And so I want to see what you'd like to add. Yeah, no, I mean, and I'll be honest, I think Jordan's done a beautiful job. I don't know that there is much that I would add outside of that, except to just double down on a claim from earlier, which is, you know, one of the things I appreciate about our podcast when we're going through the Bible is that, you know, myself specifically, you know, we're never claiming to be experts on anything. And I'm not in the business of, you know, um, cherry picking passages in order to make specific points. But just like we talked about looking at the larger narrative, and this goes back to the comment about, you know, what are we waiting and what are we not? And kind of, again, I'm repeating what Jordan named, which is people will pull out really instructive pieces. And we're able to do that in Paul, right? And, and say, this is what biblical womanhood needs to look like. And, you know, sometimes it will devolve into what is legitimately Paul and what is not. And and I just right. don't know that any of that is really what I care about. What I care about is more broadly, what is what is life-giving for women and families in Scripture? And we know that reductive um, household codes aren't it. We have women and families telling us this, right? We see. And I just think a lot of times when we're talking about how we use the Bible, we miss the practical application and how we see that manifest and ignore the voices of people saying this, the way you're interpreting this is not helping me, it's hurting me. And then we say, oh, no, 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 you know, it's fine. Your 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 experience is invalidated or you're, you're feeling the wrong way about it or whatever. And I would just argue that more broadly in its context, it is never about disempowering or hurting people. Any of those conversations that Paul or any other parts of the Bible get into about womanhood or even relationships. Like the larger narrative arc is always about care for creation, care for each other. How do we manifest God's love in our actions? So if what we're trying to do with scripture is counterintuitive to that, I think we have to we have to step away and ask ourselves if it's fruitful and if it's worthwhile. And I think that that happens with Paul all the time. I think, though, I do want to stick up for Paul a little bit because let's pe hear it. people, all, I, I love Paul. Like, let's just... <laughs> Throw that out, right out there. 
even within the letters of Paul, there is that multivocality. Uh, We have Galatians 3.28, that in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male and female. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul describes himself as a mother to the Galatians, as being Mm -hmm. in labor over them. And he is identifying with a woman metaphorically in that instance. And we, you know, have several metaphors for Jesus and God in the Old Testament as well as a mother. And so it's not just, oh, Paul's bad, so we should just like kick him out or or discount what he has to say. That's not certainly my view. And and I know it's not Lucy's either because I've done a whole podcast with her. (laughs) Because Um, we've talked about it once or twice. A little bit. But it is, it's about how do we read this and how do we... How do we weight it in those stories? What do we do when we've got 1 Corinthians 7, which preaches this beautiful mutual submission? And then we also have this one-sided submission that's in Ephesians Mm -hmm. and Colossians. And some people make that work because of the division between did Paul really write this? Is this pseudo Paul? Is it later? Other people uh, like Lucy don't particularly care about that. No matter who wrote it, it's in the scriptures. And so... How do we weight those disparate things? So it's not just Jesus versus Paul. I would want to make that like super clear, even though I've already talked too much. So Lucy, you can pick up no, on that. I no, mean, I, I was just yeah. giving you shit. I don't think you've talked too much. I want to be. I want to be sure that people totally understand I mean, that that was a joke. <laughs> you don't want mean emails. <laughs> no, I, I agree. Yes, I don't. I don't. Um, I don't hate Paul, and I do think yes, exactly what Jordan named. I think it is a matter of people. I don't think I don't think anybody served by cherry picking. And this is going to sound reductive. And I recognize that it sounds reductive. But overall, I think it comes back to is the passage that you're using hurting or helping. And I understand that can take you into problematic territory. And I'm not suggesting that we start kind of bastardizing scripture to just make us feel good, right? That's not what I'm saying. But I do think ultimately, a lot of us can get on the same page and argue that scripture should be life-giving, right? And we should be able to use it to think through, again, how we are manifesting the love of God to the world. And when we talk about a relationship between adults, right, and start to use scripture to pull power away from one person in that relationship, that's not life-giving. You know, we know that that's death-dealing. And I and and it depends, of course, on how people want to enter into their consensual relationships. But if it is, if it is disempowering someone, if, if, if it is hurting someone, wh- why not, why not reconsider? Why not go back and see, is this really what it, what it was meant to be? If somebody is telling me, you know, this is hurting me. And I think just over and over again, that is what we do, not just with Paul and women, but with scripture over and over again. Where my mind goes with that is that what we need to acknowledge if we're going to make that move is that we do have an epistemological question here that's not going to be very easy to answer, which is how do we know when something counts as being counterproductive or productive? I think that is actually a reason that a lot of people decide not to go that route. That sounds too complicated for them or impossible, a Herculean feat. Whereas just reading my Bible in its English translation and figuring out what the words mean is so much simpler. And look, my pastor agrees with me, and so I'm going to put that to rest. Maybe it sounds Herculean, but I also think that's why it's so important to have dialogue partners that don't right. occupy the same identity right. that you do. But just in the end, it's discernment. And mm-hmm. that is uncomfortable for some people. Sure. I guess all I'm saying is 
this this kind of ties it all together in my mind. The the idea of the feminist hermeneutic is to highlight these other strands and these stories that you guys are focusing on in the text on your show are doing that. They are problematizing a kind of homogenous narrative. If we have examples of these women who are mostly disenfranchised coming forward, changing God's mind via Moses, and then we say, well, that could never happen with gay people. <laughs> right. That That's wrong, right? Like, if, if we love the text, we should at least think it's possible that that would happen because there's a model for it in the text. Now, that's still a big process. And, and what counts as hurtful and harmful anecdotal stuff is – it pulls at our heartstrings, but it can be misleading because, you know, uh, people misinterpret each other all the time. I'm working on – I'll try not to get into the weeds here. I'm working on a measure of spiritual abuse right now as part of my dissertation. Hmm. And some of these questions get very tricky. Hmm. Let's say a gay person goes to a church that on their website, it does say somewhere that practicing homosexuals or LGBTQ, whatever – are not able to lead on the worship team. But let's say that this church never talks about it from the stage and they didn't happen to go read the website. And then they've been there eight months, they volunteer to sing and this whole thing blows up. Mm -hmm. Now, is that abusive? The church was clear. Were they clear enough? You know, like we would prefer them to be more clear. I personally am affirming and would want churches to be clear on that kind of a thing. My thinking is actually kind of changing on that as I do this research. Uh, I apologize for the muddledness here, but you know what I'm saying? That like just simply saying, well, it's hurt somebody. Well, yeah, but it is complicated. Some things are clearer than others that they have hurt. Yeah, I think you're asking a good question and it'll, this is a rabbit hole that we probably won't have time to get into, yeah, right? I shouldn't but, have even started. <laughs> you shouldn't have opened the can. No, I'm kidding. But um, but I, I do think, and this is interesting because I know up to this point, we've been talking a lot about kind of making space for dialogue and making space for wrestling with the hard stuff. But, but I do think so, so kind of two things are happening at the same time in my head. Number one, I am thinking about the difference between a singular experience, right, and just kind of the history of, you know, stories and ideas that we prioritize in the church and the difference there and the way that those do harm, right? Because you're right, stories are anecdotal and experiences are singular and can be misinterpreted. But we do have, right, big bodies of work where we know, you know, and and then big bodies of work that respond to that, you know, I'm thinking specifically about like liberation theology and womanist theology and this chorus of voices, right? That is not a singular mm -hmm. experience. It's a whole group of people saying, we have been missing and we're going to fix it now. And you won't put us in the story. So we're inserting ourselves into the story, you know? And then the other thing that I'm thinking about, too, is while we have been talking about making space to wrestle with, I do think if your theology is one that intentionally excludes someone because of something like sexual identity, sexual preference, gender identity, any of those pieces, you know, for me, I would say... And this is going to be really hard, but I would say that is abusive, right? And I think you do need to go back and look because what you're doing is completely discounting the humanity of a person as a child of God. And I would prayerfully ask people to really reconsider that. 
Because I think, again, this gets into, as Christians, we don't do ourselves any favors when we look at how to divide the church and who's in and who's out. And I'm not saying you have to go start voting a different way, although I would argue you should look at that. I'm not saying you have to go begin rallying for causes that you don't support, but you should never be in the business of trying to decide who's in and who's out. That's just not the work we're here for, in my opinion. Lucy has not read my sermon for tomorrow, but she's preaching it right now. Yeah. Uh, on, uh, <laughs> Revelation without the right words, uh, because my big thing is also misunderstanding the definitions of words. Go ahead. <laughs> but, but, you know, Revelation 7, the multitude gathered around the throne, right? It is clear from if we're looking at the text, it is clear that at the end of days, when God's kingdom is coming, that God is gathering around God's self. People from every race and tribe and nation and language and people and kindred. And so when we exclude people from that multitude, we are cutting out people who God is saying are in, in that book of Revelation is what I would say. Do not make unclean what I have declared clean. Amen, Mm -hmm. brother. Amen. And I would just Mm -hmm. say too, this argument, this, this discernment, that's happening in the church right now about women in leadership, about women's teaching authority, about um, LGBT inclusion. We have done this before. We have done this in the Reformation. We have done this in the abolition of slavery. And there was a season when Christians were not united on the abolition of slavery. We like to remember the William Wilberforces. We like to remember the author of Amazing Grace, the slaver who had this conversion during a ship storm and became an abolitionist. We like to tell those stories about the... During a ship storm or during a shit storm? (laughs) Both. Probably Um, both. um, Probably both. (laughs) Certainly it was a moral shit storm going on. He was on a ship. It was in a storm. (laughs) But but you know what I mean. Um, It was a ship storm within a shit storm. There we go. There we go. But like, we like to tell those stories and we don't tell the stories about the Christian slave owners who were using the book of Philemon to justify their continued enslavement. The, The Petrine epistles, absolutely. Colossians and Ephesians and those household codes. And we, we don't talk about that, but that was happening. And we don't talk about in this in the civil rights movement. We talk about Martin Luther King and how he's a pastor and he's not just Dr. Martin Luther King. He's Reverend Martin Luther King. And we don't talk about the people who used Jesus's words, go nowhere among the Gentiles when he's sending out the 12 in Matthew to justify segregation. And so we have done this before. And this is when I go back to the importance of community. And in the example you're citing, and and Lucy said this really well, expose yourself to ideas that are different from yours and be willing to hear stories that challenge your perspective because the church has changed its mind before. And, you know, you 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 named it really well when you were talking about the daughters of Zelovahad and God changing the law in response to this demand from women. And that's in the text itself. But we also have it in the history of the church. The church has changed before and we have changed the way that we've read these passages. And so it's really frustrating to me when people are like, we can't do that. 
And I'm like, but we have done it. We've done it before. And Jesus is still praised and none of us lost our salvation. And in fact, things are better. The world is a better place because slavery has been abolished. That is a more gospel, more kingdom oriented place. And so because women can vote and own property. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. if, if those changes were good, why is our immediate assumption that this change will be bad? Yeah, I mean, all that was fantastic. Uh, my my cynical rejoinder to what you just said is, if everybody believed things because of evidence and reasons, uh, then we could have that conversation that you were <laughs> the argument you were just having. But there are only a handful of people who are straightforwardly arguing for that, and maybe the John MacArthur's of the world or the whomever, and mm-hmm. and we sort of know how open to conversation those men tend to be. And then all the people who just read the John MacArthur's of the world are not really, you know, they're not not engaged with this argument. They, for the most part, like all of us, are picking up passively cues from their group uh, and the people that they look up to about what is acceptable and and what is plausible. Mm -hmm. And that is the, wow, what a, what a. deflating way <laughs> for me to respond to your guys' straight fire of inspiration. No, that's okay, because what happens I gotta is, learn something from this. No, you, people, I mean, it, so, and that is why, to go back to our conversation earlier about, you know, where power is seated and how we dismantle it, right? We occupy those spaces. Jordan and I talk, I mean, Jordan and I are like straight, white, cis women, right? Talking about marginalized voices, and you you... You, you occupy those different identities, right? And if people are not willing to enter into conversation with people that, that, you know, are different than whatever that group is, then you pull those voices in wherever you can. You channel them and you share them. And hopefully at some point it affects change and you keep doing it. Well, guys, thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, I will obviously link to your podcast and website in the show notes. Anything else you'd like to say to our listeners before we peace out? I don't think so. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure. We've I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun, and it's been good to get back to the Bible after uh, being <laughs> so enmeshed in, in the saint community for yeah. a while. And particularly, you know, we're going in chronological order when we encounter the saints. So we haven't gotten to some of the great scholars who mm. worked on biblical interpretation quite yet. Right. That's that's coming a little bit later this season. And so it's good it's good to get back to the Bible. And I think, you know, if there were anything I wanted to say to your listeners is read the Bible and talk to other people. Because if you really read the Bible and read the whole thing and not just the stories that everybody knows. And even you, the boring parts. Even the boring parts. I mean like I said, the Daughters of Zalophahad is in numbers. Do you think that people are like, I'm going to read numbers today. That's where I'm going right. to get some exciting Bible reading. But if you, if you read the Bible and if you look for the missed characters in it, and if you talk to other people who, you know, I, I'm a priest, I'm one of the senior clergy in in this diocese as an archdeacon, you know, if you talk to people who are not that, if you talk to people who are on the margins in the church, and you encounter that difference, and you encounter that difference with love, the way that Jesus showed us, then you're going to have your heart broken open. God is going to work through that. 
That's how we've seen God work in the scriptures, in Christian history, and in our own lives. And, you know, the, the people who have been reading those folks that you were talking about just now and who have had their minds changed, it hasn't been through reason and argument and intellect. It's been through relationship. It's been knowing someone who is gay and right. reinterpret. You know, I, I love Matthew Vines as God and the gay Christian, which is kind of, it came out of conversations he had with his dad and the way that his father's heart was converted for the love of mm-hmm. his son. And so it's not about trying to win an intellectual argument for me. It's about mm-hmm. establishing relationship and establishing that it's okay to have that ambiguity as long as you stay in relationship. That having the right answer isn't as much as important as being in relationship with God and with the Christian community. I just I can't resist throwing this in and uh, some of my maybe my far left listeners who are complete social constructionists about gender <laughs> and femininity and, mm-hmm. and masculinity might not like this. But as someone who tries to be more steeped in the research, if we are going to say that relationality should be prioritized over quote unquote pure rationality, which of course doesn't exist, Mm -hmm. then bringing in more female voices on the whole statistically is only going to raise that up, Mm -hmm. that sort of emotional IQ, Mm -hmm. right? And in fact, if the kind of traditional logical IQ approach or whatever, that's not really what IQ is, but Mm -hmm. if the kind of... The logical approach of dividing the word. We've had a lot had <laughs> centuries of that. But there are emotionally salient ways of, of diving into a text. And there are communal ways, like a, a community lens. Stuff that traditionally and maybe biologically, in a biologically grounded way, women are better at than men. And that's something that, yeah, like I have that value about the text. And if I do have that value then th- these are, you know, concurrent goals and, and outcomes, basically. Sure. Yeah. And, and I would say, uh, you know, I, I think you're onto something there, but I also think that it's about having more of a global perspective. If you look at some of the societies totally. elsewhere in the world, it's not necessarily a feminine value to value community right. and family and uh, being in that relationship. That's actually what I meant. I, I The reason I went to communal stuff was I was thinking of collectivist cultures versus individualist cultures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. Was try- I was trying to broaden it out <laughs> <Yeah>. beyond <laughs> men and women in the West. Sure, sure, uh, sure. Just, but yeah, but that idea of like, yeah, reading the Bible with Middle Eastern eyes, like the, these kinds of things of like, we are hyper individualistic and we tend to have a kind of a quote unquote rational male dominated view, especially in religious, more conservative circles. And so this, you know, the the emotional intelligence of women as being on the whole stronger is one example of these things that can open us up to what the text has to say. I feel like I'm just like I'm just milk toasting at this point. <laughs> This is some kind of this is some sort of bullshit progressive stump speech. I mean, let me I'm cutting myself off here. I clearly have nothing interesting left to say. Guys, thank you so much for your time. I am excited to dive in more to your podcast and just really, really love this conversation today. Thanks. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I've I've really enjoyed it. This has been really nice. And I've, I've enjoyed kind of catching up on your back catalog too. some good stuff there. Back catalog is the operative word because if people want the Bible from you guys, they got to go back. But there's so much, so much great stuff there uh, further back. And we all know it's easy. You just scroll back 
to the earlier episodes. That's right. It's not a problem. That's right. Exactly. Easy peasy. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. In the show notes, I've got a link to that survey that I just put out. Please take it. Please share it with family and friends that have ever been Christian or involved in a church or a Christian group. The more the merrier, the better and more robust the findings. And I've got links, of course, to Lucy and Jordan's podcast as well as their blog if you want to check those out. And we'll see you guys for another episode later on.